On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship. To that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Om, salutations to the Lord the Awakened One. Good morning. Yesterday was the auspicious day of Buddha Purnima, according to the Indian calendar, the full moon day on which the blessed son of India Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, the Awakened One, was born. That's the first blessing. And it's the same day on which he attained to illumination, on which day he became the Buddha, the Awakened One. That's the second blessing. And also the day when he attained what is called Mahaparinirvana, when he left his body and became free of the body. So that's the, the thrice-blessed day, it's called. And I'd like to talk a little about the life of Buddha and his teachings, from a Vedantic standpoint to a certain extent, but it can be very uh, helpful to study the teachings of other religions. Of course, in Buddha's time, there was no religion called Buddhism. It was just... Buddha was a teacher and people followed him and afterwards Buddhism grew up and he was immensely influential in in those days of uh, Buddha there were, what we call Hinduism today did not exist there was not the kind of temples and ritual worship it was uh, um, fire sacrifices and the priests had a, a lot of power and there was a terrible oppression towards the lower castes and Buddha, and a lot of animal sacrifice also, a lot of animal sacrifice. It's Buddha who put a stop to that. Buddha is often called the Tathagata. He used to refer to himself as the Tathagata. It means the one who has thus come, or the one who has thus gone, the blessed one. His father was a rather petty king, a small, a small raja of a small state. Uh, Kapilavastu is the name of the place. And uh, head of a clan, the Shakya clan. And his mother was 
Maya Devi, Mother Maya. And for 20 years they were married without any children. Then one night Maya Devi had a divine dream. She dreamt that she was taken by four devas to a divine lake in the Himalayas. And there she was, she bathed in that lake and was dressed in divine garments. And then a divine glowing elephant came to her and circumambulated her three times and entered into her womb from the right side. So this was her dream. It was very perturbing, really. She didn't know what to make of it, so they consulted the astrologers and they predicted that she would give birth to uh, a special son who would either become... uh, a Chakravartin, a universal monarch. He would either become a great king or he would become a Buddha, a world teacher, an awakened one. And they expected that he would have 32 major and 80 minor auspicious marks on his body. So this was their prediction. Sure enough, Mother Maya was in uh, with child and at the, after the 10 lunar months, she was on her way to her native place to give birth to the child. and But she didn't make it home. She, on the way, they stopped in a beautiful flower garden called Lumbini. And there she very quickly gave birth to the young future Buddha under a sal tree. This is, of course, the first of the four great pilgrimage places of the Buddhists, is Lumbini. And his mother died after seven days only. She left the body after seven days. And he was raised by her sister, Prajapati. And uh, sure enough, the astrologers looked him over and they found these 32 major and 80 minor auspicious marks. I looked about, up about them. And things like uh, his hands were, were... The auspicious marks are the, the hands will hang below the knees. The eyes will be a deep blue color. He will have 40 teeth. Don't know how. <laughs> 40 teeth. And uh, the minor auspicious marks are so many little details, like the, the fingernails will turn up at the end of the fingers and all these little details. But interestingly, it is said about Sri Ramakrishna that his arms also were very long, that his arms also hung to the knees. So it's an interesting point. And... Uh, so they predicted the same thing. The astrologers who saw the boy, they predicted that either he will become a great king or he will become an all-renouncing mendicant who would become a Buddha. And there's a very touching story of one Rishi, one Rishi Asita, who saw the boy and recognized him, recognized him as the future Buddha. And he bowed down at his feet and was in great joy. And then suddenly he started weeping. And the, the others asked, what's the matter? Why are you weeping? They got worried. And he said, no, it's such a great joy. I behold the future Buddha. But he was an old man. He said, now I realize I won't live long enough to receive his teaching. A touching story. So, like almost all parents, Shuddhodana, Buddha's, uh, Siddha, uh, the, the future Buddha's father didn't want his son to become a monk. So he tried to prevent it. And how did he do it? He 
kept him sequestered in the palace. In fact, he had three different palaces built for him for the summer and the winter and the rainy season. And it was like a pleasure garden. And there was all kinds of good food and he received training in all the arts and music and archery and all these things. And he, he was showing some kind of distaste for, for... He seemed a little bit aloof of all these things. But still... The father insisted he should be protected from the world and determined that the prince should not feel any discomfort. There were dancing girls, lily ponds. He shouldn't see any disease. He shouldn't see any old age. He shouldn't see any dead bodies, nothing he should see. But who can alter destiny? There's an interesting incident. When he was a young boy, there was a celebration and all the nurses went to see the celebration and left uh, Siddhartha under, sitting under a tree by himself. When they came back, they found him immersed in meditation. He crossed his legs and sat and became immersed in a deep state of concentration. So this presaged his future as a great meditator. So... Uh, his father got him married to one of his cousins, Yashodhara, and they had a son, Rahula. But surrounded by only pleasure, he was not content. He became restless. Worldly pleasure can never ultimately satisfy. And this was the case with Siddhartha also. The devas, it is said, came to him and sang a song, this song which... Prichita sang so nicely, is the, the adaptation of this song by Girish Ghosh, the great dramatist of Bengal, disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, uh, which he took from Edwin Arnold's Light of Asia. I'll read a couple of stanzas of this song, which the devas sang to Buddha. They are, as it were, expressing all of humanity's cry of misery and confusion, of longing for the awakener, for the Buddha to come and guide us. So this is Girish's version translated into English. So it went from English of it went from the Sanskrit to the English of Edwin Arnold to the Bengali of Girish Ghosh to the English of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. That's the one I'm going to read. <laughs> we moan for rest, alas, but rest can never find. We know not whence we come nor where we float away. Time and again we tread this round of smiles and tears. In vain we pine to know whither our pathway leads and why we play this empty play. Burst thou our slumber's bars, O thou that art awake. How long must we remain enmeshed in fruitless dreams? Are you indeed awake? Then do not longer sleep. Thick on you lies the gloom fraught with a million woes. Rise, dreamer, from your dream, and slumber not again. Shine forth, O shining one, and with thy shafts of light slay thou the blinding dark. Our only Savior thou, we seek deliverance at thy feet. So as the story goes, Siddhartha insisted on leaving the palace and having a round of the city. And his father made sure that the streets were swept clean and the houses were spruced up. 
and he went out with his charioteer, his loyal charioteer, Channa. And uh, on the way, they suddenly caught view of an old, old man bent over, with his walking with a stick, white hair, no teeth. And Siddhartha had never seen such a person. He said, hey, Channa, stop, stop, stop the chariot. Who is that? What happened to him? Channa explained, uh, revered sir, he, he has become old. What? He has become old? Must all become old? Oh, well, yes, sir. All those who do not die young, they all will become old. So it was a big blow to Siddhartha's mind. What is this old age? So he re- returned to the palace brooding about this sight he had seen. Well, they went out again after some time. This time, Buddha caught sight of a man emaciated and his body covered with sores and coughing and wheezing. And Siddhartha said, Channa, stop the carriage. Who is that? What's the matter with him? Oh, revered sir, he is sick. He has got an illness. What is this? It's it's terrible. What a misery. Does everyone get illness? Oh, yes, sir, everybody falls prey to illness from time to time. So again, Buddha was, uh, Siddhartha, I should say, was upset. He was, it really hit him hard. And he went back to the palace, thinking deeply over all these things. As the story goes, they went out a third time, and this time they came across a group of people wailing and weeping. And they were carrying a person who wasn't moving who was just being carried like a log of wood. And Siddhartha asked his charioteer, Channa, Hey, Channa, what happened? What's, what happened to this guy? Oh, revered sir, he has died. What? He has died? What does it mean? No, sir, everybody must die. Everybody, you and your father, and everyone you know, everybody will die in the end. So this was the, this were the three great blows to Siddhartha's mind. There is disease, there is old age, and there is death. This is the reality of life. Well, they went out a fourth time, and this time they saw a man dressed in orange robes, with his face shining with peace and joy. And Buddha said, Hey, Jamma, who who is that man? Look at him, he's so joyful. What... Oh, Master, he is a monk. He has renounced the world and he is striving to realize the truth. That is why he is so joyful. So this, again, made a deep mark on Siddhartha's mind. And he gradually came to understand that this, too, would be his path. The path of renunciation. The path of seeking the highest truth. So the time had come. He was 29 years old, and the time had come for him to leave the world. And not only for himself. Siddhartha was burning with this idea that the whole world is steeped in misery. There's so much suffering. He wanted to find the solution, not just for himself, but for all. But this leaving of the world meant the sacrifice of his beloved wife is renouncing the, the householder's life. 
There's a beautiful description of this moment by uh, Sister Nivedita, who is describing Swami Vivekananda telling the story. So she writes, Then came the picture of the two, long wedded, and the great night of farewell. The gods sang, Awake, thou that art awakened, arise and help the world. And the struggling prince returned again and again to the bedside of his sleeping wife. What was the problem that vexed him? Why, it was she whom he was about to sacrifice for the world. That was the struggle. He cared nothing for himself. Then the victory, with its inevitable farewell, and the kiss, imprinted so gently on the foot of the princess that she never woke. Have you ever thought, said the Swami, of the hearts of heroes, how they were great, 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 and soft as butter? So Prince Siddhartha became a wandering monk. In the dead of night he called his charioteer, and they left the palace and went a good distance, and Siddhartha removed his crown and his, his, he cut off his long hair and gave his weapons to Channa and sent him back to the palace alone. And he went on his way. He found a hunter, and he exchanged his clothes with the hunter, who was all too glad to get some nice kingly robes, and went on in his rags, roaming from place to place, practicing meditation and spiritual disciplines, striving to know the truth. What is the truth? And Yashodhara, his wife, lived the same austere life from this point on, sleeping on the floor, wearing the simplest clothing. And much later, she would become a nun also and become fully illumined. There is an incident which reveals Buddha's great compassion, which Swami Vivekananda also often referred to. He was in a place called uh, Rajgiri, and there he met a shepherd driving a flock of sheep and goats into the, towards the palace. And he asked, oh, where are you going with these animals? And he said, oh, there's going to be a great sacrifice. I'm taking them to be sacrificed. And Buddha's heart was breaking. And so he accompanied the flock, and he went to the king, and he said, well, what use will there be of sacrificing these animals? Much greater benefit will there be by sacrificing a man. You take my head. Well, the king was very moved, and he freed the animals and stopped his practice of animal sacrifice. Buddha met two teachers. The first... Uh, Alara Kamala, who was a great yogi, and Buddha practiced with him his system of meditation and spiritual practice and made very quick progress and attained to the um, fruition of his practices. His teacher found that, that Siddhartha has reached the same state of understanding and spiritual advancement that I have. And rather than being envious, he was overjoyed and he invited Siddhartha to sit with him on the teacher's throne and to jointly lead their community. There were several hundred monks in the community. But Siddhartha did not feel satisfied. He felt that he had not yet realized the truth, so he rejected 
his teacher's offer, and he went further. And he found a second teacher, Uddaka Ramaputra. He went even further in concentration, and um, again he attained to the level of his teacher. And his teacher was perhaps even humbler than the first. He suggested that Siddhartha himself lead the community from now on. He would become one of the community and Siddhartha would be the leader. But still Siddhartha was not ready. He did not feel he had realized the truth. These teachers may very well have been Jaina or Shramana ascetics. Probably they were not Vedic ascetics. So then he went on alone and five monks joined him. They underwent the most terrible austerities, the terrible fasting. They would eat just one little morsel of food every day. And but later, Buddha relates how he would touch his hand to touch his stomach and he would feel his backbone through the stomach because there was nothing left. And he was finally nearing the dissolution of the body. Then he realized enlightenment could not be attained with such a weak body. And he decided to eat. He decided he needed to eat something. And the five monks who were looking on him as their teacher and guide, they left him. They said, oh, he has succumbed to luxury. He is no longer our teacher. So they gave up uh, Siddhartha and he uh, went on alone. Well, the great night came. The full moon night of Vaishak. There was a woman, the daughter of a, of the chief cowherder of the village, who brought, seeing a monk, brought some rice pudding for him. And he ate that rice pudding, that blessed offering, on which, uh, being nourished by which, he was ready to sit for the great night. And he found a, a great lonely peepal tree, and here he made his seat. And he took a resolve. He took the famous resolve. Ihasane shushyatu me shariram Tvagasti maam samilayam prayantu Aprapya bodham buhu kalpadurlabham Naivasantat kayamidam chalishyati Let my body wither away. The skin, bones and flesh dissolve. But before attaining awakening, even if it takes an age, I shall not move from this seat. So now Siddhartha had developed the firm resolve to pierce the veils and realize the truth. It is said that at this time, the Mara, temptations of Mara, the Buddhist personification of worldliness, of negativity, of tamas, came to tempt him, first sending his uh, daughters who were the most seduct- seductive daughters, but he was not tempted, and then coming with, all, with his armies to threaten Buddha. But Buddha was not, sl- Siddhartha, I should say, Siddhartha was not swayed. He entered into deep states of concentration. They are called the jhanas, the four jhanas. They are successive states of ever deeper meditative awareness. And as the morning star arose, 
Siddhartha ceased to be. The Buddha became. The awakened, the Tathagata, attained Nirvana. And in the words of Edwin Arnold, he said, Many a house of life hath held me, seeking ever him who wrought these prisons of the senses, sorrow fraught. Sore was my ceaseless strife. But now, thou builder of this tabernacle, thou, I know thee, never shalt thou build again these walls of pain, nor raise the roof tree of deceits, nor lay fresh rafters on the clay. Broken thy house is, and the ridge pole split, delusion fashioned it. Safe pass I thence, deliverance to obtain. It is said that uh, this, in this picture of the Buddha, this is actually a photograph of um, Buddha uh, touching the earth with his right hand, called the, uh, the with his uh, right hand, Bhumi Sparsha Mudra. Uh, this uh, signifies the very moment of his enlightenment. He was uh, sitting and Mara came with his armies and Mara said, leave that seat. I am the one who is actually entitled to sit in that seat. And his armies all spoke with, with one word, yes, we bear witness. Mara is the one who is truly mm, eligible for this throne, this seat. And then Mara asked, who will bear witness for you? And Buddha said, the earth will bear witness. And he touched the earth. And then the earth, Mother Earth spoke, forward, spoke and bore witness to the Buddha's illumination. And at that moment, he attained complete awakening. So great was his joy his utter peace, that he remained seated for seven days in that same place. Then, for seven days more, he gazed in gratitude at the tree, the pipal tree, which ever after is called the Bodhi tree. And after that, he paced backwards and forwards for seven days in ecstasy. It is said that everywhere his feet fell, lotuses sprang up. It may be a little bit of exaggeration. <laughs> but it is to give the idea of how blessed the moment was and how great his joy. What was the nature of Buddha's realization? What is the nature of his awakening? It's difficult to say, actually, because that state is beyond speech and mind. Buddha himself uh, would not speak of it in positive terms. Nirvana, it means literally extinction, blown out, like a candle blown out. Extinction of all suffering, extinction of all craving, extinction even of the sense of self. If there is no self, what remains? What remains is beyond is and is not. And Buddha realized what he would teach as the Four Noble Truths. When people would ask Buddha, who are you? Are you a god? No. Are you a man? No. I am Buddha. I am awakened. 
That much he would say, I am awakened. So this spot, the whole, the sacred, under the sacred tree where Buddha attained his illumination is a very important pilgrimage place in India, near Gaya, Bodh Gaya. And today, thousands and thousands of Buddhist pilgrims and Hindu pilgrims and pilgrims from all over the world come there to sit under the tree. The original tree is no longer there, but a sprout from that original tree was preserved and a new tree was grown from that. And maybe that one again was sprouted. And so it's a descendant of the original tree which grows there. Now, Buddha doubted about whether he, should te- whether he could teach. The world seemed so enmeshed in ignorance that could he teach what he had realized? So he was thinking, no, he will just live out his days and uh, having discovered the truth, having realized the truth, he wouldn't be able to teach it. But it, says, it's, it is said that Brahma, the Deva, Brahma Dev, came to him and begged him, no, you must, you have been born for this. The world needs your teaching. So he agreed to teach the Dharma. And he went to a, what is called the Deer Park, which is right near present-day uh, Benares, Kashi. And uh, there he found the five monks who had left him, who had thought he had become luxurious. He found them, and they saw him coming. They didn't show him any respect. He was coming up to see them, and though he had been their teacher before, but they felt that he has fallen from the path. So they just said, okay, hi. <laughs> no, they didn't stand up to receive him. And uh, then he told them he has, uh, that he had uh, awakened. And at first they doubted him. They said, no, you fell from the path. And then finally he, he told them, did you ever know me to tell a lie? Then they realized, no, Buddha has become awakened. And they became the first monks of the Sangha. They received Buddha's teaching and they all became illumined souls themselves and they became the first uh, monks of the Sangha. Now, now those who uh, follow Buddha, they take refuge in Buddha and in the Dharma, his teachings, and in the Sangha, the community. Buddham sharanam gacchami, dharmam sharanam gacchami, Sangam Sharanam Gacchami. These first five monks, they only took refuge in Buddha and Dharma because there was no Sangha. After this point, all who wanted to embrace the monastic life or to follow the Buddha, they took refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But the first monks, there was no Sangha yet, so they took refuge in just Buddha and Dharma. And these are called the three jewels of Buddhism, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So let's talk a little bit about the Four Noble Truths which Buddha discovered. The first Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha. Truth that in this world, the the very nature of this world is Dukkha. Now ordinarily it's translated as misery or suffering. This is not a very accurate translation. It doesn't tell us enough. Dukkha has the sense in this context of impermanence, imperfection, insubstantiability. There is happiness in this world. There is joy also. 
but ultimately it's impermanent, it's unsatisfying. This world can never really satisfy us. There's a deep-seated dissatisfaction that we all have. And this is the first noble truth. The very nature of embodied life is one of that you can never get satisfaction from it. You can never attain to true peace in, through just living your life in the world. The second noble truth, he found the cause of this state of affairs. The cause of this dukkha, he found it is, he called it tanha or trishna, thirst, craving. It is craving which causes this state of, unsatisfactory state of affairs. And he discovered a chain of uh, what, what is called dependent origination, that everything is dependent on something else. And uh, let me read a little definition of this. Any phenomenon exists only because of the existence of other phenomena in a complex web of cause and effect, covering time past, present, and future. Because all things are thus conditioned and transient, they have no real independent entity, identity. So this is the idea that there's that nothing has independent existence. Everything is, in a sense, empty, because it's all dependent on something else. So this is his second noble truth. Then the third noble truth: this state, this miserable state of affairs, has an end, and it is called nirvana. There's an end to the state of suffering and misery and dissatisfaction. And what is nirvana? It is the complete cessation of that very thirst, giving it up, renouncing it, liberating oneself from it, detaching oneself from it. It is the calming of all conditioned things, giving up of all defilements, extinction of thirst, detachment, Cessation, Nibbana. This is in the Buddha's words. It's often expressed in a negative terms because if it is expressed in positive terms, then it becomes something for the mind to hold on to. Oh, well, then it's that. So it's actually beyond the mind. The mind can't hold on to it. So it's expressed in negative terms. And in fact, the descriptions of nirvana sound very much like the Vedantic descriptions of Brahman. Without form, without taste, you can, beyond the mind, beyond speech. Now, Buddha taught the teaching that you ha- we ha- there is no permanent individual self. There is no Atman. Anatma, anatma vada, it's called, the, the teaching of no self. How do we understand this or reconcile this with the Vedantic viewpoint of the self? Well, Advaita Vedanta, at least, non-dualistic Vedanta, agrees that ultimately the individual soul, what you call your own individual self, is but an illusion. There is only one infinite existence one infinite reality. But Vedanta accepts the 
existence of the self provisionally, of the, of the individual self, I have a self and you have a self, provisionally we accept it, Vedanta accepts it. Of course, the other schools of Vedanta insist upon it. Advaita Vedanta accepts it provisionally, says ultimately it's only one infinite reality. Buddha, however, denies it from the very start. He says, it's a mistake, don't think, about, don't think of that. Now, there's the, this was the, three, the third noble truth. The fourth noble truth is the path. Buddha taught a wonderfully practical, beautiful path to illumination. And we can learn a lot from it. The Eightfold Path, it's called. Buddha emphasized self-effort and direct experience. No God will save us. Our realization is in our own hands. And these eight folds, these eight limbs, we can say, of the path, they are to be practiced simultaneously. It is not uh, in the yoga, the eight steps of the yoga school, each step is to be practiced one after the other. One attains to one step and then one goes on to the next step. But in this, they are all to be practiced simultaneously. And I think we can just go through them and remind ourselves. Most of us have studied them before. First of all, one Buddha tells us that uh, we start with samyak drishti, right understanding, right view. He wants us to have a proper understanding of the Four Noble Truths, of this truth that life is somehow unsatisfactory and that there's a cause for this dissatisfactory nature of our life and that there is an end to this dissatisfaction, this misery, this suffering. There is an end to it. And fixing this, understanding this deeply is the first of the Eightfold Path. And then leading from this, is samyak sankalpa, right intention or right resolve or right thoughts. One resolves then, if this is the state of affairs, one resolves to realize, to practice the Eightfold Path and realize the truth and become free from suffering and misery. And Buddha emphasized very much the importance of thinking correctly, having the right kinds of thoughts, Thoughts of selfless detachment, thoughts of love, nonviolence, extended to all beings. Many Buddhists practice the, the, this idea of metta, developing an attitude of friendliness to all, to both friends, of course, and also enemies. So the great importance of our thoughts. Then, samyak vak, the right speech. One should abstain from <coughs> telling falsehoods, from speaking in a way that divides people, from abusing people, and from idle chatter. This is right speech, samyak vak. That's three. Samyak karmanta, right action. Buddha advises us to refrain from taking life, not only human life, but animal life as well. Refrain from taking life, no stealing, and no sexual misconduct. These three, uh, these three mistakes, you can say, will really, really cause us a lot of problems, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and 
in spiritual life, in these three areas, if we can set ourselves straight. Buddha also emphasized that one's livelihood should be right, samyak ajivika. So he asked he, he asks his disciples and followers not to engage in trades or occupations which either directly or indirectly result in harm to other living beings. This is a very tough uh, point because in so in, in many subtle ways our our livelihood may in some way impact other beings. But specifically in his time, he mentioned that trading in weapons, trading in human beings, in other words, slavery and prostitution, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poisons. These five specifically he mentioned. Then samyak vyayama, right effort. This is like our yama and niyama, discarding the unwholesome and cultivating the wholesome. And finally, the last two, samyak smriti and samyak samadhi, right mindfulness and right concentration. Buddha very much emphasized the practice of mindfulness, being mindful and attentive of our bodies, our minds, our sensations, feelings, our thoughts, our conceptions, paying attention to them, noticing them, and then just being aware of them, cultivating intense awareness. And then this develops into a deep concentration. There are four levels of this deep concentration marked by increasing equanimity. In the first, there is a a joy, while the mind may not be 100% silent, it's mostly silent and a great joy arises. In the second state, the mind becomes perfectly silent and one experiences intense joy and happiness. In the third state, the joy subsides and one only has happiness and equanimity. And in the fourth state, the deepest state, even the happiness subsides and there's only absolutely perfect peace and equanimity. In some, we could say, Buddha's Eightfold Path is self-effort. You have to do it yourself and do it by doing good and meditating. Then you'll realize Buddha avoided all philosophical and theological debates as being entirely unhelpful for spiritual life. Of course, soon after he left the body, dozens of different philosophical schools arose in Buddhism. Uh, But uh, he himself tried to stop those kinds of discussions as unhelpful. There was one monk, Bhikkhu Malunkyaputta. He came with ten metaphysical questions to to a Buddha. Is this universe eternal or not? Is this universe infinite or not? Are the soul and the body one? Or are the soul and the body two? Like that, he had ten questions. Does the Tathagata exist after death? Or does he not exist after death? So Buddha answered with a, 
a parable which I think most of us know. Suppose uh, you are shot with an arrow and a surgeon comes to remove the arrow and he's about to remove the arrow and you say, wait, stop! Wait, uh, sir, who shot this arrow at me? And uh, what is this arrow made of? And I see there are some feathers in the, in the end of it. From what kind of bird these feathers come? And uh, what kind of bow was used to shoot the arrow? No, you're not going to ask any of that. By the time you start discussing that, you're dead. Just take the arrow out. Afterwards, if you need, you can learn about all these things. So this is Buddha's very practical advice. All these theological arguments and discussions are not going to help us wake up. They're not going to help us make spiritual progress. We've, we have an, we're, we're shot by an arrow. The Buddha's eightfold path is going to remove that arrow for us. That's his point. Remove the arrow, then you can ask all the questions you want. And then the questions don't need to be asked because the understanding is there. So Buddha went on teaching the Dharma and traveling from place to place, and soon he had thousands of monks following him. It was not only his teaching, but the power of his personality, the power of his illumination, clearly. Many became illumined merely by hearing him preach and teach the Dharma. And Swami Vivekananda had the utmost respect and love for Buddha, Some of the things that he specially loved about him were his same-sightedness. He was ready to teach one and all. He broke the idea of caste. Everyone is entitled to hear the truth and to practice the Eightfold Noble Path. There are a couple of little stories I'd like to read out from Sister Nivedita's book uh, recounting Swami Vivekananda's telling of two stories of Buddha, the cowherd and the barber. And they give a sense of uh, Swamiji's love for Buddha and also the the greatness of Buddha. It is a wet night, and Buddha comes to the cowherd's hut and gathers into the wall under the dripping eaves. The rain is pouring down and the wind rising. Within, the cowherd catches a glimpse of a face through the window and thinks, ha-ha, yellow garb, stay there. It's good enough for you. And then he begins to sing. My cattle are housed and the fire burns bright. My wife is safe and my babes sleep sweet. Therefore ye may reign if ye will, O clouds, tonight. And the Buddha answers from without. My mind is controlled. My senses are all gathered in. My heart is firm. Therefore, ye may reign, if ye will, O clouds, tonight. Again the cowherd. The fields are reaped, and the hay is all fast in the barn. The stream is full, and the roads are firm. Therefore, ye may reign, if ye will, O clouds, tonight. And so it goes on, till at last the cowherd rises in contrition and wonder, and becomes a disciple. Or what could be more beautiful than the barber's story, says Swamiji. The Blessed One passed my house, my house, the barber's. I ran, but he turned and awaited me, awaited me, the barber. I said, 
May I speak, O Lord, with thee? And he said, Yes. Yes, to me, the barber. And I said, Is nirvana for such as I? And he said, Yes, even for me, the barber. And I said, May I follow after thee? And he said, Oh, yes, even I, the barber. And I said, May I stay, O Lord, near thee? And he said, Thou mayest, even to me, the poor barber. Now, a barber in those days would have been a very low class of society, someone who cuts the hairs and considered a dirty job, but equally welcomed by Buddha. No distinctions. The truth is for all. There's another wonderful story about Angulimala. There was a very a, a brutishly wicked man whose name, given name was Ahimsaka, the harmless one, who became a dacoit, and he used to kill his victims and cut off one of their fingers. And string. And he had a, a garland of human fingers which he would wear. It was, must have been a horrible thing to see. And uh, that's why he was called Angulimala, because Anguli is finger and Mala is the is the neck garland. So he was called Ongulimala. And he was terrorizing the villages uh, all around. And uh, frightful. So um, Buddha was there in this uh, area. And the villagers warned him, don't go that way. Ongulimala isn't that way. Don't go that way. But Buddha was unconcerned. And he went on the road which Angulimala was patrolling. And Angulimala, seeing Buddha, thought, ha, here's another finger for my mala. So he started running after him. But, and this is the one story where we find the Buddha practiced a little bit of uh, magical powers. No matter how hard Angulimala ran, he somehow couldn't reach Buddha. Though Buddha was walking at his normal pace, but he couldn't reach him. And he got flustered and surprised. He said, hey, monk, stop. And Buddha answered, Angulimala, I have stopped, but you haven't stopped. And Angulimala thought, well, what? What, what, what does he mean? Well, what do you mean? Oh, I have stopped. I have stopped doing harm to all beings, but you have not stopped. So in an instant, Angulimala became transformed. He saw the errors of his ways and he wanted to become a monk. And Buddha accepted him as a monk of the order. And it is said that not long after that, Buddha was sitting in, uh, with his monks and the king came who was uh, hunting for Angulimala to kill him once and for all. And uh, mm, King Pasenadi and uh, Buddha asked him, well, what would you do if you learned that Angulimala had become a bhikkhu, a monk, leading a holy life? And the king answered, I suppose I would honor him and give him alms, but that is impossible. Then Buddha turned to one of the monks present and said, behold, here is Angulimala sitting before you. So that's the power of Buddha's uh, compassion and teaching and a demonstration of uh, his teaching that 
And hatred can never be conquered by hatred, but only by kindness, only by love, only by compassion. So I think we'll close with a little passage from Swami Vivekananda describing the last day. Buddha uh, lived for 80 long years. He had 45 years of ministry, and then the time came for him to leave his body. And he took, uh, he told his intimate disciples that the time was coming near, so they were expecting it. They weren't pleased about it. Mm. And he took a tainted meal from one uh, blacksmith. And he wouldn't permit any of the other monks to eat any of that food, but he himself ate it. And afterwards he instructed his disciples to express the deepest gratitude to this blacksmith for giving him this meal, because this was the means of his deliverance from the body, and not to uh, feel in the least bit bad. And this, of course, is the third of the thrice blessed blessings. If he was great in life, he was also great in death. He ate food offered to him by a member of a race who eat everything indiscriminately. He told his disciples, do not eat this food, but I cannot refuse it. Go to the man and tell him he has done me one of the greatest services of my life. He has released me from the body. An old man came and sat near him. He had walked miles and miles to see the master, and Buddha taught him. When he found a disciple weeping, he reproved him, saying, What is this? Is this the result of all my teaching? Let there be no false bondage, no dependence on me, no false glorification of this passing personality. The Buddha is not a person. He is a realization. Work out your own salvation. Even when dying, he would not claim any distinction for himself. I worship him for that. What you call Buddhas and Christs are only the names of certain states of realization. Of all the teachers of the world, he was the one who taught us most to be self-reliant, who freed us not only from the bondage of our false selves, but from dependence on the invisible being or beings called God or gods. He invited everyone to enter into that state of freedom, which he called nirvana. All must attain to it one day, and that attainment is the complete fulfillment of humanity. Om na brahma loke na cha deva loke na yaksha gandharva manushya loke lokasya jatira japameta nanyostitvato hi manushya chandra Vanditastam surai sendrai rishibhishchapi pujitaha Vedai sarvasya lokasya vandeham apitvam vibho Loke kleshagni santapte pradurbhuto moharadaha Namostu bodhisattvaya sambuddhaya namo namaha Namostu Bodhisattvaya Sambuddhaya Namo Namaha Om Shanti Shanti Shanti
O moon among men, we find no remover of birth and death in this world, not in Brahmaloka, nor in Devaloka, nor in the worlds of Yakshas, Gandharvas, or men other than you. You are praised by the gods, Indra and others, and worshipped by the rishis. You are the physician for the whole world. We too worship you, O all-pervading one. You have taken birth like a great lake, extinguishing the fires of worldly affliction. Salutations be to the bodhisattva, to the awakened one we bow. Om, peace, peace, peace.